Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Great Everything. This is Patrick. It's the 28th of March, which makes it the anniversary of the birth in 1483 of one of the greatest artists of all time, someone who is truly so legendary that even if you have no interest in his art form or art in general, you still know who this guy is. I'm talking of Raphael Losancio, the Renaissance painter, who you know as Raphael, one of the 14 Age Mutant Ninja Turtles of the Renaissance. His nickname in Italy is Il Principe delle Arti, the Prince of the Arts, which I find really cool. A lot of artists have these kind of nicknames and it reminds me of jazz, you know, the idea of jazz royalty, this series of nicknames that various jazz artists had throughout the decades, which kind of created a sort of like a tongue-in-cheek hierarchy between them. You had Joe Oliver, King Oliver, right? You had... Duke Ellington, you had Count Basie, you had the President, Lester Young, and so on. A little fun sort of uh, hierarchy between them. And there's something similar with, uh, with artists, right? Especially in the Renaissance, you had Michelangelo, Il Divino, the Divine Michelangelo, which is a great nickname and really on point as well. I mean, think about the level of life and intensity that he was able to imbue his art with, his figures, the, those figures on the Sistine Chapel or his statues. And I've talked about this before, but you may have heard that story of Michelangelo sculpting his uh, statue of Moses and getting frustrated and striking it with a hammer, saying, Perché non parli? Why don't you speak? basically saying that the statue was so lifelike that it might as well be speaking. So, Il Divino Michelangelo, someone who had the power of a god to imbue inanimate objects like, like stone and marble and a ceiling with real life. And Raffaello was the prince, uh, an elegant figure, very noble, very aristocratic. He, well, you know, he was a debonair man about town, a very different figure from Michelangelo. And I did a segment about this, which I'll share after the break. It's only a few minutes long, so this whole episode today shouldn't take more than 10 minutes of your time. But I recommend that you listen. And here's why. Not just because, of course, that's self-serving, but (laughs) obviously that's a reason. But I've been thinking about what I'm trying to do with these little Culture Bite episodes. I'm trying to differentiate the kind of offering that uh, I have here on this podcast. You know, I'm just growing pains, learning how to do this. We're all new at this podcasting, aren't we? I've been doing it for a year, but given my life situation, all the changes that I've been going through in the past few years, you know, leaving a career in, well, corporate banking law and then moving into academia but then having to abandon that suddenly because of my mother's health condition. I changed countries twice in the last six months. That's, that's real. Like I, I moved from, in August, in September, I moved from London to Budapest to Hungary and then in a few weeks after that from Budapest to Rome. So all these different things and the things that I'm dealing with here make it quite difficult to have some structure in my life but I'm trying to I'm trying to bring it all together and the great everything is helping me do that but that means that I'm also trying to put some structure into the great everything and broadly speaking there's the real episodes of the great everything which is where we take one topic and we're just going to deconstruct the whole thing and I'm using that term deconstruct loosely I just mean dig deep you know unveil the different layers see the contradictions really get to the heart of the matter but Although that is incredibly ambitious and impossible for someone of my intellect to ever accomplish, the idea is 
what I'm aiming for every time I talk about one big topic like evolution or gun control or ethics or, well, yeah, as I said, ambitious, is to give you the alpha and omega that you basically have to listen just to these 40 minutes or half an hour or one hour and you'll exit being like, okay, I actually have a real grounding on this topic. Like, I understand it. I understand its context within the larger debate. I really feel that I have um, the groundwork that I need to be able to move forward with my exploration of this area if I want to. And then there's, you know, different things. There's my little ramblings uh, that I do. I call those the diary versions. Do little ramblings about what's in the news, things that I'm interested in. And then within the diary, there's also these little culture bites, you know, like a five-minute segment on Raffaello. And these two have a purpose that kind of fit within the broader idea of the great everything. Think of that name for this podcast and the blog, The Great Everything, which is a name my friend Mark came up with. It's a really good name, I think, actually, for this project. It's all about the big picture. When I talk about jazz, I do want you to understand what I'm saying about jazz. But what's more important to me, especially if you're a beginner, is that you understand the place of jazz within the broader conversation. So it's not just about, hey, what makes jazz jazz and why is it interesting and why is it cool? But what is the place in history, in our evolution of our culture, of jazz itself? How does jazz connect to stuff that is not jazz? to the stuff that came before and the stuff that came after. It's providing context, it's providing the bigger picture. It's providing an idea of how all of this human experiment fits together, all of it. Sociology, art, culture, uh, the news, all of it. And so Culture Bites, a little five minutes on Raphael, what can that do for you? Well, hopefully you will tell me, but what I'm aiming It's not so much for you to say, okay, I really get Raffaello now. That's impossible. You need to study a lifetime to get an artist as interesting and complex as Raffaello. But the idea is, here's some impressions I get from this artist, and here's how I place him in the context of other artists that you may also be familiar with. Because when you are not truly familiar with a topic or an artist or a figure in history, I think it's more helpful at times not to just know what makes him or her different, what makes them stand out, but also what they are not. It sounds like the same question, but there's some nuance there. It's about understanding how they relate to things that are not them. It's creating a map around those, so you have a framework within which to fit them. So. When I'm talking about Raffaello in the next segment, I'm not really going to say much about the artwork, although I really, really recommend you go and find some high-quality images of three of his artworks, really. The Madonne, uh, I think the one, the one that I mentioned with the, uh, with the little goldfinch, the, the Virgin Mary with the goldfinch, that's fantastic. Great example of his Madonna series. It wasn't really a series, but there's so many of them. The Transfiguration of Christ, which I think is the most beautiful painting I've ever seen. Raffaello is not my favorite painter. That would be Caravaggio. But his painting, The Transfiguration of Christ, is my favorite painting of all time. I'm going to be in its presence on uh, Sunday. And I'm going to try and live tweet it from inside the Vatican uh, art gallery. Because there is nothing that I could say that can express the power and the force and the feeling of just utter awe 
that I have when I'm in the presence of this huge, stunning painting. The, it's, it is like being faced with God, if you believe in God, or the Grand Canyon, if you don't. And also, you should definitely check out his frescoes in the Vatican's, in the, the Pope's rooms, the Raffaello rooms, they're called. The most famous one is the School of Athens. I mean, you see pictures of the School of Athens, you know, the, that fresco of all the... Um, of all the philosophers and Plato and Aristotle in the middle. I've always found that one interesting because as a philosopher and someone who's interested in art, it kind of unites two of my great passions, right? Philosophy and culture. And there's all these little, how could you say it? There's these little, uh, I don't know, in-jokes? They're not jokes, they're kind of references, they're cultured references. You see Plato at the middle of this fresco, you see Plato, who's got the face of Leonardo, by the way, and Aristotle. And they're at the center of it, because at that time, of course, they were the two greatest philosophers who had ever been, arguably. And you have Plato, who's pointing up at the sky. And that seems to be a reference to Plato's uh, form of idealism, you know, his theory of uh, forms, of how this world is kind of like um, a, a bad copy or a lesser copy of an ideal world, of a hyper-uranium. So, in a way, you could almost see him as a very... Well, you could read him through a Christian lens. You know, someone who's very interested in the heavens, in the ideal, in the otherworldly. So he's pointing at the sky. Hello, Golda. That's my cat, Golda, saying hi to all you listeners of The Great Everything. Not really. She, she doesn't know I'm talking to you right now. She just knows that I'm ignoring her. So she's calling for me, but... Um, yeah, but I thought you knew that. Next to Plato is Aristotle. And Aristotle, right, he's known in some circles, and I think rightly, as the father of science. He's not interested in that otherworldly element, or at least not to the extent that Plato is. So he's pointing at the ground. He's got his hand, uh, point, not pointing quite, but it's turned down, his palm facing the ground. And it's almost like he's saying, uh, you've got to stay with your feet on the ground, man. You've got to focus on what's real, what's here. You know, he's the guy behind biology, behind zoology, behind so many of the sciences that we still study as disciplines in our colleges today. So it's full of these little in-references to, to what the philosophies are, but it's so beautifully constructed and it's such an incredible piece of work and so complex that you should see it. And when you look it up, you don't always realize that it's not a painting, that is actually a room. You can stand inside a room and have that, that School of Athens by Raffaello surround you. And I'm gonna be there, I think it's on Monday, this weekend anyway, this Easter weekend, and I'm going to stream it. And of course, I'm gonna let you know about it so you can, you can find it on Twitter or wherever I'm gonna do it. But uh, I'm gonna try and see if I can convey any of that feeling that I get when I'm placed within uh, the presence of that great art. So, after that long ramble, I'm going to leave you with five little minutes on uh, Raffaello. This obviously went on far more than I intended it to because I am a rambler and I get lost in my own thoughts sometimes. But that is the intention here. It is to provide you a little taste, a little bite of something cultural that will hopefully whet your appetite to the point where you say, you know what, I'm going to look some of this stuff up. You know what, I'm going to buy a book on Raffaello. You know what? I am interested in knowing what his place is in the broader picture of Renaissance painting. Why is he different from Michelangelo, which is kind of what I focus in on the, in these five minutes. 
and just generally how it all hangs together. Anyway, let me know if you enjoy and if you'd like more of these. Until then, I remain your humble servant, neither a humble servant nor a normal servant or a humble person really, but sounds like a good thing to say. Anyway, I'm going to leave it at that. My cat is calling me and uh, so duty beckons. Arrivederci. I've often talked about how an artist's personality shines through their art. In many ways, the work of an artist is a vehicle for their character. I've discussed this in relation to musicians like Big Spiderberg and artists like Michelangelo. At the time, I called Michelangelo the greatest artist who ever lived. Most experts and art historians would probably agree. Part of what makes him stand above the rest is his total domination of a number of different fields drawing, sculpture, architecture, and of course the Sistine Chapel shows that he's also one of the greatest painters of all time. But if you just take painting, there's another that stands as perhaps his equal. Raffaello Sanzio, Raphael, il principe, the prince of painters, born yesterday in 1483. Raffaello is another one of those artists whose character is perfectly evident in his work. He was the opposite of his great rival Michelangelo, pretty much in every way. Michelangelo was the prototype of the tortured artist, a loner who had to claw his art from deep within his soul. His work was agony and ecstasy, but Raffaello was a young charismatic gentleman, a superstar and a womanizer whose art flowed naturally as if he didn't even need to think about it. A couple of nights ago, I went to see the philosopher Slavoj Žižek interview Ray Fiennes, you know, Voldemort. Žižek had this comparison. He said, Michelangelo is like Beethoven, stern and powerful and dramatic, but Raffaello is like Mozart, elegant, harmonious, serene, makes everything look easy. Michelangelo's art conveys terribilità, force and terror, whereas Raffaello's is all about grazia, grace. And few of his paintings embody that feminine gentleness more than his pictures of the Virgin Mary. He did about 40 of them because he just loved drawing women. All these Madonne have this very subtle restrained emotion. It's all very calm and elegant and courtly. There's this one detail that I just love. It's in the Madonna del Cardellino, the Madonna with the goldfinch. Look it up. The picture is her with two babies at her feet, John the Baptist and Jesus, of course, and it's arranged in this pyramid shape that's very harmonious. And in her left hand, she's holding an open book, but she's looking down to her right. And in this detail, you get the whole sense of her gentle movement. It's amazing, like a graceful dance. And then there's the vibrancy of the colors. It has to be seen to be believed. In this, he truly was light years ahead, even of Michelangelo. And there's also such humor in the paintings. Everyone knows those cheeky looking cherubs looking kind of bored and mischievous, you know, in the Sistine Madonna. But his paintings always have some funny detail that you wouldn't expect in the stern Michelangelo. There's a guy adjusting his sock in the middle of the Virgin Mary's wedding, a boy hastily scribbling down a note while standing precariously balanced on a leg, or the many characters he has look straight at us with these expressions that say, you see in this? <laughs> it's bizarre that his most famous piece is in some way the least Raphael of all his work. The School of Athens, that famous fresco with all the philosophers gathered around Plato and Aristotle. 
I say it's not very Raffaello because it's clearly so inspired by Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. He was painting this in the private rooms of the Pope Julius II, at the same time as Michelangelo's working on the Sistine Chapel, just a few yards away. The story is Bramante, the Pope's architect and a friend of Raffaello's, secretly let him in to see the unfinished chapel, a thing that would have infuriated Michelangelo. But Raffaello was so awestruck, he modelled many of the figures in the more masculine style of Michelangelo, and even made a late addition to the piece, the figure of Michelangelo himself in the role of the philosopher Heraclitus. Throughout his career, Raffaello's work was always more ethereal than the very dramatic Michelangelo's. But towards the end of it, Raffaello too managed to capture some of that terrible passion in what I think is his greatest work, the Transfiguration, where you see Christ in all his glory rising to the heavens, while onlookers cast in darkness below him look up in awe and terror. Raffaello died very young, aged only 37, probably from syphilis from his constant womanizing. This is another contrast with Michelangelo, who lived well into his 80s. It's said that when he died, Pope Leo X wept at his feet, saying that the world had lost its greatest artist. I disagree with that, but I do agree that the world may have lost its greatest painter.